I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, this morning we have a very long reading as we will be looking at chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 26. So the second part of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. And we, there were two different ways to go about this. One, it was, would have been to break this up in a lot of small little portions. Uh, because as we'll see, what um, Solomon here is reflecting upon are, are four different tests that he brought to life. And we could look at each one of those tests individually. But the way the structure of the text has, has been written for us, all four are meant to be put into contrast with the end of chapter 2. So I, don't wanna, I didn't want to try to deal with each one individually and keep constantly contrasting it to chapter 2. So we're going to do one big chunk. And don't worry, uh, the different tests that are listed here, he, uh, he comes back and touches all of them again as we work through the book. Um, so I'm going to do my best not to pound them today. Uh, even though these, these tests are really fun. This is the, a teacher's or a preacher's kind of great dream text if you really like to get loud and aggressive. Just totally joking. Ecclesiastes. I guess I should open mine too, right? For those who are visiting, um, what we have titled the entire series on Ecclesiastes is uh, How Dying Informs Good Living. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is, unhappy, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, 
the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man who comes after the king, only what has already been done? Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. That was a perfect ding, because this is the transition. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy but to the sinner he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, wisdom is your gift. And so we ask for it this morning. 
we bring many concerns into this house today. And so use the wisdom that you revealed to Solomon through his experiments to help us see the world and to see ourselves and to understand you in a more clear way so that we can follow you as your people by finding joy in your gifts and not abusing those gifts in order to find something else. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This is a, a wonderful expression of, of what I said a couple weeks ago in the, in the first introduction on Ecclesiastes as to how Ecclesiastes isn't your straightforward wisdom. It's not this clear black and white kind of thing because if you were paying attention in the reading, what you heard him say was, finding pleasure in toil is chasing after a wind. And then he says, the best thing you can do is find pleasure in your toil. That's the way Solomon speaks in Ecclesiastes. And what Solomon does is he uses a, a form of argumentation that uh, can often be described as chasing, where, where what he does is he says, well, if you're looking for meaning and purpose in life, well, it's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this. And he's going through, and he's telling you what it's not before he finally says, here. So he's chasing after it. It's an inductive way of reasoning. Many of us don't naturally or typically use inductive reasoning in our everyday lives. We tend to use deductive reasoning where, where we, we, from what we believe to be true, we kind of work out some of the details. And so I don't want to torture you by chasing after the argument and leaving you hanging, even though that would be really fun to do from a pastor's perspective. But because the language here can sometimes be confusing to people, I, I want let, to, let's deal with the confusing language up front and then we'll dig into the details. And the reality is simply this. If you are looking to use toil, to use pleasure, to use food and drink, if you are looking to use those things in order to find meaning and purpose in life, then you won't. But if you receive those things as gifts from God that take you through the thing to God himself, then they are a pleasure. It all comes down to why you are engaging with that thing. Here in the different exams that he does, the, the different tests that he does, he, he looks at wisdom as, as a test. Does wisdom provide you some sort of ultimate meaning so that at the end of your life, you have something left over? He looks at pleasure. He looks at wisdom versus folly. He looks at wisdom 
And the answer is, it's chasing after the wind. Why? Well, because you can learn everything there is to know, and guess what? You can't fix the world. You can't. You can't change how things are because this world exists under the curse of God because of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. And there is nothing that you or I can do to change that reality. And so learning and becoming wise will not help you overcome what is. And so if you're pursuing knowledge, if you're pursuing wisdom as a way for you to somehow get a leg up so that you can play the, 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 the make-believe game that we talked about last week, that I can somehow control things in my life, you are chasing after wind. Because there's no amount of knowledge that will allow you to change the world as it is. He also says it's chasing after wind because there is no amount of knowledge or wisdom that you can gain that will change the, the way you understand the world. Let me put that a different way. The more you learn, he says, the sadder you get. Why? Because this is a fallen world and we can't change that. No amount of knowledge, no amount of technology, no amount of science can change what is. And so if you're using wisdom, if you're using knowledge, if you're putting your hope in technology and science and these things, they're going to not only fail to change the world, what they will reveal to you is how broken it is. And this is not just with regards to information. As we've been talking about in the emotions class on Sunday afternoon, this includes growing in emotional intelligence, growing in, 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 a, in a maturity of relational wisdom. And what happens the more that you grow and the more you mature emotionally? Guess what happens? You go from living a life focused on yourself and how you feel to all of a sudden be aware that, guess what? There are people around you, and they feel differently. And many of them feel bad. The more wisdom you gain, the more aware you become of the world, the more aware you become of people, the more aware you will become of yourself. And looking into the depths of your heart, are not always a pleasant experience. Wisdom does not provide any kind of meaningful, lasting, ultimate answer. It does provide answers, but the answers that it provides are answers that you can't use to change things and to exercise control. And so the more you learn, the sadder you become. Wisdom's out. All right? Well, if, if wisdom isn't the answer, what he does is he goes to the polar opposite. So in the text in chapter 1, he talks about how he looks into wisdom and madness. And madness is, uh, as it is used here in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, it, it means the opposite of wisdom. So wisdom means living according to the knowledge that 
that you do come to learn and understand. Madness is basically saying, well, what if I just don't accept the truth and I try to pursue life that way? What if I don't weigh myself down with knowing about how bad things are and instead what I do is I just pursue pleasure? If wisdom will make me sad, obviously pleasure will make me happy. And what is his answer? No. It's like trying to herd cats. Well, he says the wind. In our context, I think cats is a little more tangible. You ever try to take multiple cats and get them to do the same thing, the right thing that you want them to do? It's vanity. It's hevel, as we have talked about in here. It's not meaningless in, in terms of that there's no meaning one bit whatsoever. What it means is it is air. It is vapor. It is here today. It is gone tomorrow. Can you, by the way, pleasure here in chapter 2, pleasure as he talks about here, he does not mean sin. Now there is some sin that's included, but the concept of pleasure that he's talking about here is not inherently sinful pleasure. It just means I'm not going to overtax myself with wisdom. I'll just kind of go about, right, happy. And he, and, he, and he says, guess what? That too is hevel. It is air. It is breath. Why? Well, because there was pleasure there, but the pleasure was not concrete. It was not ultimate. It did not define things for me. It did not change the world as it is. And so pleasure, whether you are pursuing godly pleasure or whether you are pursuing sinful pleasure, the pleasure itself and the pursuit of the pleasure does not provide you anything lasting. And the problem for these two polar opposite approaches is that whatever you learn with regards to wisdom, not only does it not change things, but you're still going to die. And with that, whatever pleasure you're able to experience, it's fleeting because guess what? You're going to die. And so wisdom isn't the answer. Pleasure isn't the answer. And so, he's, so then he goes to, well, okay, well, hold up. What if the answer is somehow found in wisdom versus folly? Maybe that's the answer. Maybe the answer is found is that maybe wisdom is not ultimate, but maybe the fact that it's better than folly is where the answer lies. And what does he find out? No. You can be the wisest person in the world, as he is at this point in time. And what's going to happen? You're still going to die. Now, he does say it is better to be wise than to be a fool. It is better to go about your life where you make plans and where you pursue things and, and where you have a budget, for example, where, where you are being responsible with the way that you manage the things that God has given you. There is absolutely a superiority to being wise than to being foolish. But even though it's better, it's still not ultimate, and it does not change the fact that you and I are going to die. 
What about possessions? No. What does he say? It's chasing after wind. Why? Because whatever you possess today is gone tomorrow. You possess it for a time. And he doesn't say here, by the way, that possessing it is wrong. He doesn't even say possessing more of it is wrong. What he says is, if the fact that you possess this stuff is where you are looking for, what you're looking to in this life, it's not an answer. Because you can accumulate the most of anybody, which he has. And the reality is this, he's going to die. And he doesn't take anything with him. Well, what if I pursue possessions in order to give them to the next generation? What does he say? It's chasing after the wind. Because the one to whom you give it, you don't know if they're going to be wise or they're going to be foolish. But at the end of the day, what happens to, the, to that person? He or she will die. Do you see what's going on here? The problems that he is finding in these different tests do not come specifically because of the thing itself. The problem is what he is using the thing for. Wisdom is a good thing to pursue, he says. But if you pursue it as a way of fixing and changing and controlling, then it's air, it's breath. And it does provide a temporary benefit, but it cannot ultimately change the reality of what exists. And so it's air, it's hevel. So he works through these different tests. There's another test that I think is implied here that goes beyond simple wisdom, pleasure, um, wisdom you know, being better than, than folly and, and, and possessions. And that ultimate test that I think that he is bearing expression to, we talked about already in the opening verses, and that is that temptation that you and I have to becoming our own authorities. To put it another way, we, like Adam and Eve, struggle to want to be like God. Notice that in the early portions of chapter 2, as he explains the pleasures that he goes after, he, he doesn't just talk about laughter and, and wine and doing great things. He talks about building vineyards and houses and gardens. And by the way, anyone who has read the Old Testament from a theological perspective hears the words houses, uh, vineyard, uh, and gardens in a very specific way. Throughout the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God uses the imagery of house, 
vineyard and garden as an expression of his redemptive program of what he is accomplishing in this world for his glory and for his joy, and that is redeeming a people for his namesake. And he uses these concepts of house, garden, vineyard throughout the Bible, always as an expression of two things. One, his plan of what he's attempting to do that he will succeed in versus man's plan that man is attempting to do in opposition to God, which man will not succeed in. And this is true within redemptive history, whether you are looking at unbelievers, Gentiles who are outside the covenant, or if you look specifically at the covenant people itself. Whether you're inside or outside the covenant, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, there has been an attempt to build their own house and their own garden and grow their own vineyard. And every time that they have engaged in this, God has had to bring judgment and to stop it, to bring it to an end. You see, there are two competing kingdoms that are taking place within history right now. There's God's kingdom and there's Satan's. And what we are told about Satan is is that he is someone who is fraudulent. He likes to take the same ideas and concepts that that God uses to reveal what he is doing. He likes to steal those and twist those. When you look at what he is describing here, Solomon as the king, as an ancient Near Eastern king, Solomon, from a, a perspective, a worldly perspective outside of the covenant, Solomon would have been the only person made in the image of the gods. He had a unique position, a unique authority. And the way that the ancient Near Eastern worldview worked was the gods created people to be their slaves because the gods were lazy. The gods didn't want to do the work for themselves. The gods made slaves for the slaves to do things. And what did the slaves do? They built houses of worship, which we call ziggurats and pyramids in the ancient Near East. They built gardens and they built vineyards. The gods used the people to do these things. Part of the imagery that, that Solomon is pulling from here as people to who, that, he, that were hearing him back when he lived, they knew all that. You and I don't know that. This is not common knowledge to you and I, but it was common knowledge to the original audience of this, and they knew what he was describing. What Solomon had done in his pursuit of wisdom and pleasure and all things that he set his heart on, all things where he didn't keep his eye from anything, What Solomon is recognizing is what he was doing was he was playing the role of a counterfeit God. He was building a garden for himself through the use of slaves where the garden was full of the same things that that are described for us in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 1 and 2. All the fruit trees you can imagine Trees and and the vegetation springing up out of water. 
not simply describing irrigation. And what Solomon says is, when I attempted to play the role of God, that was chasing after wind. Beloved, you and I try to usurp God so often in so many different ways, many of which we're not even typically aware. But here's what, what, what Solomon does. He doesn't say, therefore, whatever you do, it's all hevel. He doesn't say that. What he says is, when you're able to let go of trying to play the role of God, and when you're able to let go of trying to use things and matter and consumerism in order to profit for yourself, when you are willing to let go of those things, something amazing happens. When you let go of trying to be God, you are now freed up to revere And when you're willing to let go of trying to use his creation to promote yourself and to get ahead in life and and to create meaning for yourself, when you're willing to let go of that, what you are able to do is receive the gifts that God wants us to have. You see, the problem here is not that Solomon is seeking treasure. It's where he is seeking its treasure. It is the why, the motivation of why he is seeking treasure. He is seeking treasure from created finite things that are going to decay, that are going to rust, that are not going to last forever. And so they can provide a momentary pleasure, but they cannot provide anything lasting or ultimate. When he is trying to take creation and make it accomplish something that creation is not meant to accomplish, that is heaven. It is air. It is not lasting. It is not ultimate. But when he is able to acknowledge creation for what it is, a gift from God, then what he says is not only is there joy to be found there, There is nothing better. You see the issue? The issue is not don't look for pleasure in your family because that's earthly. By taking things from your family, whether it's actual concrete physical things or if it's sucking life out of them emotionally and psychologically, don't try to take things from them in order to make yourself feel better about yourself. You don't use family that way. There is a joy that is experienced in family when you give to the family. And then when you receive back as a relationship works in going in both directions. There is nothing wrong with having and possessing money. Having and possessing a lot of it from what I've been told. God saves some of us from certain temptations. There's nothing wrong with it. But if you are pursuing it 
as a way of getting ahead, then you're abusing it. If you're using that wealth as a way of gaining status, as a way of experiencing an easier life, as a way of having to get out of certain responsibilities, then you're looking for it to do something that it's not designed to do. So what he says is this. There is nothing better for you than to let go of using God and using his world. What you want to do is receive from God the gifts that he gives us in this world. Because guess what? God wants us to pursue treasure. He just doesn't want us to pursue treasure on earth. He wants us to pursue our treasure in heaven. Because where your heart is, I'm sorry, where your treasure is, there also is your heart. And here's what's beautiful about this. God has given us amazing gifts in this world. And though the world is fallen, though the world is groaning for redemption, we talked about on Easter, though that it's true, God's goodness is still here in this creation. God's goodness, his beneficence, his goodwill. He, and this is not just for believers, right? He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He allows unjust people to, to sow and reap. God is not what Satan said to Eve in the garden. He is not stingy. And he is not afraid for us to know him and all of his benefits to the deepest satisfaction of our souls. That was the lie. And that lie was followed up with, if you want joy in this world, then what you need to do is separate God from his benefits. Where you still have the garden, you still have the fruit, you still have all the blessings, just keep God out of it. Solomon says, I tried. And it's chasing after the wind. So beloved, God is not stingy. And God has revealed himself to be a God who is, is, is um, one who loves to bless he loves to give. In fact, in Hebrews 11, which we will use moments from now to confess our faith, he says, if you are going to have faith, then you have to not only believe that God exists, but that he rewards those who seek him. And so, beloved, don't let this text and the reality that, that looking for these things in the world is, 
is air and it's not ultimate. Don't allow that. Don't, don't go to the opposite extreme and then say, well, therefore, there's nothing good in this world and I just need to be so heavenly minded that I'm not tainted by the concerns of this world. No, what God has designed for us, even as the world is falling, is that when we receive his good gifts that are still here, then through the gift, we are able to enjoy the giver. The early church called this sacramental living. Lowercase s, all right? So don't think sacrament like baptism or the Lord's Supper. This is not a means of grace. But what they understood was that if you lived in this world and pursued the good that is here, you taste not only of the goodness of the gift, you taste the goodness of the giver. And so they structured their lives so that as they went about living, as they went about seeking treasure in heaven, they did that by receiving God's gifts in the here and now. And so if you're using your job to get ahead and to make a name for yourself and to accumulate things and you think that that's going to make your life easier, that's hevel. It's vanity. But if you see your job as an opportunity to bear witness to God, you use your job to bear witness to God, to bear witness to his good gifts in the way that you live for him and, and that you appreciate your job because of what your job allows you to be and to do, then your job is not toil. Your job can be pleasure. Now, he's going to work the details out of this as we go. But the big picture for us today is we have to reevaluate because of our coming death. We have to reevaluate how we manage our time, our treasures, and our talents in this life. And we use them as a means to knowing God better and to bearing witness for Him in a world that is looking for meaning in things that are nothing but air. Beloved, the world that we live in is a world that needs to know that there is something more ultimate than this world. They are living in Vanity Fair, snacking on cotton candy, and experiencing the momentary sugary sweetness of something that disappears. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask for your wisdom, not because it guarantees life for us, not because it, it means that life will be easier or it'll somehow all of a sudden make sense, or it's not going to make sense on the side of the heavenly places. And yet your wisdom is here for us in order to live a good life bearing witness to you as those who receive your good gifts, those who take joy and pleasure in who you are and, who, and what you provide. And so help us, Lord, to look at our earthly possessions differently, that we would see them as conduits to enjoying your goodness. Help us to see our vocations differently, that they are conduits by which we may know your presence and bear witness to it. 
We ask that you would help us to reevaluate how we look at money, how we look at our time, how we look at our relationships, Lord, how we look at food and drink, so that whether we eat or drink, we may do all to your glory. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.